Tonight's talk is on Vipari Namadukkha. So this afternoon I um, read a post on Facebook from a friend in her mid-30s named Jessica. And for about 10 years, Michelle and I were involved as teachers in this mentoring program for um, young meditators in their 20s, and she was one of them, but she's now in her mid-30s. But she's been practicing since she was a teenager, since she was 13. Um, So she's in her mid-30s with 23 years of practice under her belt. Pretty good way to start out an early life. (laughs) So she wrote on Facebook this morning with a slight edit from me. I just want to say for the record that being mindful is not all stress reduction and roses. It's a warrior sport of being willing to be with the most painful parts of the human experience without shying away, defending, rationalizing, letting your heart be pummeled, and then seeing the joy, wisdom, and beauty that emerges from within it. I emailed her to ask her if I could uh, quote her, and she wrote back and she said, I'm glad that something good came out of my day because it was quite a hell of an afternoon. (laughs) And partly I'm reading this because I'm going to talk about dukkha again, but I want you to get the last part which says, and then seeing the joy, wisdom, and beauty that emerges from within it. So we're not talking about dukkha because we're masochists. We're talking about dukkha because it leads to joy, beauty, and wisdom. I, in general, love teaching um, young people because there's a certain uh, creative spark that I really enjoy. So I teach the um, retreat every year for the 18 to 32-year-olds that happens here in the summer. And so one year somebody forwarded us uh, a blog that somebody had um, uh, written uh, named Patrick Groneman had, ri- had written um, for his retreat. And what he did is he took a before and an after photo of his retreat. So there's a picture of him before the retreat and he looks kind of pretty flat, kind of like this, you know, and then there's an after picture, and he's like, <laughs> you know, just lots of energy and um, um, aliveness in his face, <laughs> and, he's, and he writes, this past week I endeavored on my first ever week-long meditation retreat in the beautiful and inspiring Massachusetts landscape at the Insight Meditation Society. The most consistent question I've been asked by friends and family since returning is, What was it like to be silent for a whole week? To which my only response has been, actually kind of noisy. (laughs) Describing the process of a meditation retreat is quite simple. You sit and watch the noise of your mind for long stretches of time and see how the waves of thought ebb and flow. Sounds simple for the most part, but the frequency of thoughts and intensity of rising emotions can make the process very unclear, extremely boring, and sometimes really scary. So he says all of that, yet his face at the end has this aliveness and this um, joy in his eyes. So there's a strange process that we have. We come here and we, um, we go through a lot, most of us. Sometimes we have, you know, chilled retreats that are pleasant and easy, and that's great too. Um, but a lot of times we, we go through a lot, and we can, in the middle of this, go like, why am I doing this? Why am I still here? And um, something happens out of that. Something happens. And often we don't really know what it is until later, until we have time to reflect back. Scientists have said, our scientists say that the art of observing something changes what is observed. I think that's true in our own practice, in our own hearts and minds, that, the, um, that observing them changes them, changes something. Even if we can't see it in the moment. 
So uh, the other night I talked about dukkha dukkha. Um, so the Buddha, as I mentioned, had three kinds of dukkha that he described. The first one, dukkha dukkha, which is most obvious to us. It's a dukkha of um, associating, associated with unpleasantness. And most of us don't have any problem recognizing that as dukkha. And as I said, each um, dukkha then, or each part of the equation, gets uh, a little bit subtler and kind of deeper into the problem. So the next time a kind of dukkha is um, called viparinama dukkha, or sometimes called anicca dukkha. And this is a dukkha associated with that which is pleasant. So we don't usually think about this. We don't usually want to think about this. Um, but it's, it's, the, it's the, the truth that um, what is pleasant contains or can contain the seed of suffering because it ends, right? Because of impermanence, because of change, because nothing endures. And the Buddha didn't deny that life has beautiful and pleasant moments. But he said that even those are tinged with dukkha because they will end and we can't keep them. We can't make them obey us. So there's a certain, um, as Michelle used the word last night, unreliability, unsatisfactoriness with um, even what's pleasant. Because it won't solve our happiness problem. (laughs) It won't um, bring us the, the enduring happiness that we're hoping that it will. So our conventional understanding of happiness, I think you know what that is. It's that you maximize the pleasant and get rid of the unpleasant. And it would be so great if we could make that work. And we have some success. I think that's why we keep getting deluded by it. Yeah, we can, you know. If we want some pleasantness, we can go get a cup of tea. So, um, you know, and if we're sitting and uh, it's unpleasant, we can move. So so there, we do have some success <laughs> in... in um, managing uh, some of the pleasantness and unpleasantness, right, of life. We're not powerless here. But if that's our plan for happiness, if that's how we plan to find happiness in our lives, it's going to be kind of endless. There's going to be this um, restlessness and edginess as we... um, try to manage all this changing pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral experiences that arise. And we're going to be disappointed because the pleasantness can't produce the kind of happiness that we want. We're pulled this way and that, restless and busy all the time, and it's kind of exhausting. It's where most of our energy goes. So we're here considering another way. Henri Nguyen said, You don't think your way into a new kind of living. You live your way into a new kind of thinking. So we often hope that we can come here and we can think our way into a new kind of living, that we can figure this out, right, by by going over it in our minds and trying to understand it intellectually and cognitively. But he said, you don't think your way into a new kind of living. But you live your way into a new kind of thinking. That's what we're doing here, this um, paying attention to our lives moment by moment. We learn, produces a new kind of understanding. It takes some faith to, to, to give this a try because we have a lot of faith in our thinking mind, right? In our ability to figure things out in the thinking mind. And to actually be willing to kind of let our thoughts go and come back to this direct experience, body, heart, mind. Take some faith. It takes a willingness to give it a good shot. (laughs) If you want to, like, put a little fire under your practice, some of you don't need it, maybe, but those of you who might want to kind of give a little oomph to your practice, you could try taking a period of time, uh, a day, an hour, a day, a sitting, 
the rest of the retreat, um, where you make the commitment to not choose to think, to not voluntarily think. Now that doesn't mean you're not going to think. You are, you know, you're going to think. <laughs> the mind thinks. But when you wake up, when you have that moment of waking up to make the commitment not to choose to, oh, I'll just think about this one. Um, as Michelle was talking about how the, the, the balloon kind of expands, the energy grows, and then we find ways that we um, leak the energy so that it, the energy gets back to a, what feels more comfortable perhaps to us. One way that we do that is choosing to think, deciding to, oh, I'll think about this or I'll think about that. Um, don't get me wrong, it doesn't mean you're not going to think. So the idea is not to stop thinking, but the idea is um, that when you, you wake up and you have, there's a little choice there usually, right? To like, okay, let it go. Come back to the simplicity of direct experience. I did this for um, the five months of my first retreat, uh, my first long retreat here. Uh, I had that commitment for the whole five months that I would never voluntarily follow a thought. And I broke it once. I thought plenty, but I, I always made that commitment. It was really helpful for my practice, so you can try that if you want. And don't worry, you'll still be able to think enough to get around and do your day. <laughs> You're not going to become um, uh, unable to take care of yourself through this commitment. <laughs> There'll be plenty of thinking to get then whatever needs to be done. But really, we don't need to think about very much here. It's kind of cool. You don't have to plan where you're going to go today. Early, you don't have to plan much what you're going to wear. You probably didn't bring very much with you. and You don't have to plan what you're going to eat. It's nice, that simplicity. So part of this investigation, then, will be um, the investigation into pleasantness. We talked the other night about the investigation in unpleasant experiences. So tonight we'll talk mostly about the investigation into pleasantness and pleasant experiences. So pleasant sounds, thoughts, um, smells, tastes, emotions, body sensations. So we explore how can we relate to pleasantness wholeheartedly, fully, even knowing that it is impermanent and won't last. Often what we find is that the relationship to pleasantness, as we were talking about this morning, is, will be one of um, trying to hold on. That's our instinctual, without mindfulness, uh, relationship to what's pleasant. How can I keep it? How can I hold on? And so there, this kind of energy comes in. How can I get more? <laughs> How can I make it happen again? Um, and you can feel just by, by my hands, there's this contraction in that wanting energy, right? There's tension, stress, dukkha, and that wanting energy. And sometimes it's really obvious, big struggle. You can just see yourself really like wanting. You have a pleasant sitting. Somebody said there's nothing like a pleasant sitting to ruin your day because like <laughs> you'll have a pleasant sitting, right? And then, and then you'll see like how can I make that happen again, right? There'll be tons of um, dukkha around that and it'll be really obvious. Other times it's really subtle. You'll be sitting, there'll be a sitting. Maybe there's lots of calm. So you're sitting there with the calm. And then something starts niggling a little bit. You can feel a little niggle, niggle. <laughs> and it's like, if you turn your attention to that, it's like, how can I make this day? <laughs> or what if this ends? Right? So it can be that kind of just very subtle and everything in between. So we want to be curious about that. We want to... Um, investigate it deeply, get to know it well.
sometimes when I'm out in nature, I can notice this. So let's say it's a beautiful um, sunset. You're watching the sunset. It's kind of a ritual here that people do sometimes. So I don't know what... I think we're in the talk during the sunset right now, aren't we? Um, so watching the sunset. And then if it's really beautiful, you can see yourself like there can be this enjoyment. It's pleasant. And then there's some like how can I more fully get the pleasantness of this experience, right? You can feel like a little tension comes in. So then I can turn to the pleasantness or that that tension. It'd be like, oh, wanting. And sometimes when we turn to it, it's this power of awareness. As I said, it changes um, what's seen. Sometimes when the awareness turns, the, the, the wanting just releases. Then you can be with this, the the pleasant seeing of the sunset, without that tension of wanting more from it. That's an example. The other thing of mindfulness of pleasant, it's really interesting to see our hidden stories. Some people talked about this in um, in group today. Our hidden stories our beliefs about pleasantness. So there'll be this belief like somehow this experience is going to do it for me. Or if it's not this experience, the next one will do it for me. And when we say it out loud, it's like it's so obvious that it's not true. But when we are with something pleasant, we get um, enchanted. It's said we get enchanted or seduced. So we we fall into a trance where we're like, oh, this thing is going to do it for me. Or sometimes there'll be this hidden thought like, this is going to last forever. And then you look, of course not, right? But when we're in the, in the enchantment of the pleasant object, we'll believe that it's going to last forever. So there's always, when, when grasping is present, there's also present... Um, Delusion, or um, um, delusion in the Buddhist sense of not seeing clearly. So sometimes we don't have as much motivation for this um, investigation as we do with unpleasant experiences. With unpleasant experiences, there's lots of motivation. We're suffering, we want to stop suffering, and it's very obvious to us. Uh, I sometimes call this the advanced instructions. Because uh, it takes a little more commitment because often when there's something pleasant happening, we just want to focus on the pleasant object. And the pleasant object can can hide some, the contraction of wanting or the dukkha of holding on. So it takes... Um, it takes some uh, commitment to be willing to look. We don't really want to burst the enchantment, is the truth of the matter. We like the enchantment of, of pleasantness. We're not so sure we want to become disenchanted. A number of years ago, I was teaching a retreat with um, another one of the young people from this program that I mentioned. Um, she was teaching yoga at a retreat I was teaching with me, and I was talking about a little bit on this subject with her. We were talking at dinner a little bit, and she says, I like clinging. It makes me feel better, kind (laughs) of. I like clinging. It makes me feel better, kind (laughs) of. I love that it makes me feel better, right? It's like we like the illusion of control that we get, like that we can hold on to something, that we can keep things um, pleasant, that kind of enchantment. But then she says, kind (laughs) of. Because when we look more closely at clinging or holding on, we see that it's stressful. It's not so pleasant. So sometimes when um, folks are on retreat, as um, Michelle mentioned the other night, we can get some really good thoughts going. We can get some really nice creative thoughts going, our next big project, or we can get into some really nice fantasies. Um, And sometimes people will be like, well, why would I want to leave this? Like, why would I want to let this go and go back to the breath? This is much nicer. Um, 
And if we're going for the conventional understanding of happiness, there's a good point there. Why would you let it go? We're trying, if our conventional form of happiness, we're going to get more um, pleasant moments and we're going to get rid of unpleasant moments, a nice fantasy, a a great project planning um, in your mind would seem like a good choice to stay with it. But the Buddha's teachings are pointing to a kind of unconditional happiness. One that's not dependent on things being pleasant. And so when we're willing to uh, let go of a fantasy, for example, and come back to being right here and right now, you could say we're practicing a little bit of that unconditional happiness. That's why we wouldn't um, bother to to make that move. We're we're aiming towards a happiness that's not dependent on circumstances being a certain way. This is a really handy kind of happiness in the kind of world we live in, where circumstances change so much all the time. So it's a kind of um, renunciation or simplifying this movement, right? To be willing to uh, let go of a fantasy or um, some pleasant thought stream and come back to the present moment. This word renunciation doesn't have a really good rap in our culture. Um, But what it really means, renunciation is really about learning that we don't have to have things pleasant in order to be happy. It's really pointing towards this unconditional happiness. We're really encouraged in this culture in the opposite of renunciation. We're encouraged in the consumption of things and experiences. So what we're suggesting here is um, radical and revolutionary. Happiness in simplicity. I'm on to young people uh, this time. I'd like to read a story from a, a teenager from the teen retreat named Elliot Cash. I used to teach the teen retreat for 18 years. I don't anymore, but I also enjoyed that a lot. At any way, age, we can taste this kind of freedom that the Buddha was pointing towards. So he, um, his first retreat was when he was in his mother's womb and uh, attended family retreats and then the teen retreat. So he got a really good head start. And this he wrote when he was 17, and he'd already been to three teen retreats. Last summer, during a sit toward the end of the teen course, I was going about my normal routine, settling the mind, focusing on the breath, and letting ambient sounds come and go. Suddenly, I experienced a first in my meditation practice, I was uncontrollably happy. Feelings of total relaxation, of fullness, of being in the right place and doing the right thing were produced. Experiencing this happiness was extremely powerful. It wasn't about beating a video game or buying a new pair of shoes, but was pure joy in its simplest form, joy about nothing at all. Added to that was the awesome presence of 60 other teenagers meditating all around me, which brought sensations of absolute comfort, safety, belonging, and most of all, positive energy. I was radiating positive energy. I was at the pinnacle of my spiritual mind-altering high. Breathe in, breathe out. And a couple of minutes later, I was back to the struggle of staying in the present. While this deep happiness only lasted a short time, it was gratifying to know how rewarding it is. It has given me the curiosity to become more mindful on a day-to-day basis, whether it's taking a deep breath every so often to remind myself of now or noticing subtle scenes of beauty while walking down a sidewalk. Pure joy about nothing at all. I remember the first time that I had that experience on retreat, too. And I was just washing dishes. I was a pot washer, just washing dishes. 
looked out the window, it was snowy out there, a little sun. And I was so happy. And I was shocked. I was like, wow. I mean, I was like as happy as I'd ever been in my life. And um, I was so happy I was crying. And uh, it was about nothing at all. So we do this exploration um, around pleasantness and how we relate to it. I had a really interesting time exploring this in Burma um, when I was on retreat there recently. So one thing I love about being on retreat in Burma is the sweet tea that we have for breakfast every morning. La Peye Cho. Michelle likes it too. Uh, she gets like a whole, a whole thermos full. <laughs> I'll take it up to her sometimes, or one of the servers will take it up to her, this whole thermos full. I was sitting at a table where I had to share a thermos full with four people. <laughs> That's a whole other story. <laughs> Watching the mind, like, watch other people take their tea and be like, huh, how much, how many cups has she taken? And how much is, you know, it's like, how am I going to get my lepecho? Um, grasping, right? A little bit of grasping. It's pretty funny. I don't know why I like this tea so much. It might be because it has a lot of sweet and condensed milk in it. <laughs> um, but I start looking forward to it months before I go to Burma. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, on retreat, you know how this is. You're having a, um, a, a hard time. And then you, you kind of grab on something that's coming up, you know, and it's like, okay, but there's this, right? Like, but there's lunchtime or whatever. So for me, it's always, but there's a la cho, you know, like every morning, la cho. And um, so I got really interested in... in um, just paying attention to, to my experience of drinking the tea. Uh, I'm a morning person. I have a lot of energy in the morning. This was, this was at like 5.45 in the morning, pretty early. Um, but I, every day I was paying attention to this whole experience of how I was relating to the pleasantness of the tea. I tend to, when I go to Burma, there's something about this place. It's been a monastery for hundreds of years, so... You know, you can feel the power in this hall from the mindfulness of the last 40 years. Well, this place is hundreds of years. And so I drop in very quickly into retreat. So the first morning, we go down for, for, for breakfast, and I have my lapecho. And I cried all the way through breakfast. I didn't sob, you know, but the tears running down my cheeks as I was drinking the tea because I couldn't make the pleasantness stay because it kept falling away. Like every moment, the pleasantness was falling away, falling away, falling away, and it made me so sad. I was so sad about this. Um, So that was the first morning. And then um, over subsequent mornings, um, I remember this feeling of like crushing disappointment. I'd be like, LePage, oh yes, right? This is going to do it. And I'd be drinking the tea, and I'd be just like, Oh, it's not going to do it, you know. I'd be so disappointed. (laughs) So I just, you know, mindfully being with this. And then I remember another time, um, so I had my um, cup of tea, right, and I'm being with the process as it's going along. And then afterwards, I was so angry at the tea (laughs) that, that it didn't do it, you know. It was so bizarre on one level, um, one of our teacher friends says, the mind has no shame, right? So I was like so angry at the tea. I was like, you are supposed to do it and you didn't do it. I felt a little bit like a two or a three-year-old, like the mind was a two or a three-year-old, like you take something pleasant from a, 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 a child. I was having a little tantrum, right? So I kept being with this process of being with the tea. And then one day I remember it was um, pleasant, it, the pleasant would arise and the letting go of holding on to it arose at the same time. And it was moment by moment of pleasantness letting go, pleasantness letting go, pleasantness letting go. 
and there was deep peace. It's like the mind learned something by paying attention to this process. I didn't try to make that peace happen. That wouldn't have happened. It wouldn't have worked. I couldn't have tried. But I did pay attention, or my mind paid attention. And through that process, it learned, oh, if we're attached to to pleasantness, we're going to be disappointed. It's not going to deliver the wish. So there was this sorrow, disappointment, anger, and then leading to peace. And the pleasantness did become less intense, but that did not concern me in the least because at that point what was most noticeable was that deep sense of peace, of utter resting in the truth of the way things were. Find that the pleasant was less intense. This word um, disappointment, sometimes I find it interesting that it's translated into Spanish of desilusionamiento, which means unillusioning ourselves. So what we call disappointment, when we have disappointment in practice, you know, the pleasant doesn't deliver, we're actually um, un- becoming, coming out of delusion or illusion. So it's a good thing. So if we have this discouragement or disappointment, it's actually good because it means that we're seeing through our cherished illusions to the truth of the way things are. We're coming out of that spell, out of that enchantment. It's considered wisdom that's coming out of that spell. I had a similar experience in my um, first long retreat here. I was young, I was 24, and um, I went through a a whole period of time where I kept trying to figure out what was going to make me happy. It lasted for about a month, and um, it seemed like my primary thoughts, dreams, were what's going to make me happy, and I was looking for something permanent. (laughs) So I would come up with all these scenarios, like I'm going to... live in a little cabin in the mountains, that'll make me happy. And then I'd be like, oh, no, that's not going to work. I'm going to get lonely. And then I'd be like, well, I'll live in a spiritual community. That'll make me happy. And then I'd be like, oh, that's not going to work. They'll drive me nuts. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, I'll have some kids. I'll have a family. That'll make me happy. And then I'm like, oh, I don't want that responsibility. And this went on day after day after day. It was like, what's going to make me happy? What's going to make me happy? And, and kept trying to look for something that was going to really right do it. And I kept being disappointed because everything I would come up with it was like there, it, it, it couldn't deliver. And, I, and there was so much fear in the heart and mind during that time. But then one day I just got it. I went into my teacher and I said, it looks like there's nothing that's going to permanently make me happy. And she said, yep. I said, so I guess the thing is we look at the moment and, and how we're relating to that, and that's a place we can really look. And she's like, yep. <laughs> and the fear went away. It was like, oh. I think the fear went away because I was finally getting kind of realistic about where we can look. So, as I described this morning, uh, um, we're going to move a little bit beyond just pleasantness to looking at um, this place of feeling tone in our exploration. So as we mentioned this morning, so we have the the sense experience arises, some sense experience, and... um, It has a feeling tone. It's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And if we uh, don't pay attention, we we, uh, 
fall into our conditioned responses of trying to keep the pleasant, pushing away the unpleasant, and spacing out on the neutral. And so what we do, what we can do is bring um, curiosity to how this conditioning unfolds. So seeing it ourselves. I was talking this morning about there's three things we can pay attention to. We can pay attention to the sense experience. We can pay attention to the feeling tone, the quality of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And then we can pay attention to the um, response often grasping aversion or spacing out, right? Or sometimes the response will be like me and the cup of tea, just peace, acceptance, no drama. (laughs) We don't go off into the drama. And we can move between those three and just try to understand for ourselves, how does this work? How does this connection happen? See it moment by moment. Meditation isn't about learning to control the mind, but about giving up the need to control it. That's what we learn in this process, is that less and less need to control um, the experiences and more and more of an ability to flow with them to flow with this wild stream of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral experiences. So we increase our willingness and our tolerance and our ability to meet this crazy wild world as it is, which means as this constant flow of change. What about neutral experiences? I notice sometimes drinking my cup of tea, so there's pleasant, pleasant. And sometimes I would be with one, one um, mouthful for a while and be pleasant, pleasant, pleasant. The pleasant would start fading, right? And then it would be neutral. I didn't like the neutral. <laughs> I would get, that's, that's when the anger would come in at the, at the pleasantness, is like when it went down to neutral. But as I kept paying attention to that, um, also the pleasant, pleasant, less pleasant, less pleasant than neutral, I started to recognize that the neutral was actually a place of rest. And I started to really appreciate the neutral feeling tone or experiences with a neutral feeling tone because the pleasantness wasn't there to grasp onto. So there was nothing to grasp onto with the neutral, or nothing to push away. It didn't activate grasping our version. So it's really interesting to explore this place of neutral, some experience that's neutral. Check it out for yourself. Can we develop a relationship with neutral experiences and perhaps have a little taste of peace through that because there's nothing to hang on to, to hold on to or get rid of, right? Except what often happens is that when it's neutral, we get bored, right? We space out or we get bored. What about boredom? We hate boredom, right? We don't want to be bored. Most people would rather be anything rather than bored. They'd rather have a, like, a nice, great, like, anger attack or something rather than be bored. What would it be like to allow yourself to become thoroughly bored? Try it. See what it's like. What you might notice is that in boredom there's often this slight or maybe even more dramatic um, wanting or not wanting, that actually what we call boredom is, is wanting something more exciting or not wanting something neutral. 
See, check that out for yourself. Trungpa Rinpoche said, meditation is boring, boring, boring. (laughs) Boredom can be close to peace. It's kind of interesting because with boredom and peace, um, they're similar in that nothing dramatic is happening. So for some people, the, the, the doorway into peace can be through what looks like it might be boredom. It's actually just lack of a super stimulating experience. So eventually, or at times, we, become, we start to become a little less concerned about whether experience is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. We start to be able to hold those um, with more lightness, with more ease. And a few weeks ago, I was um, pulling up at my house on my bike. I'd been out for a bike ride, and uh, the person who... Um, bought the lot next door to us. So I live in the country and there's a lot next door to us that has woods on it. He was there with a forester. And um, so I went over there to see what was going on. And uh, he said, yeah, I'm thinking of building myself a little retreat hut back there. And this forester's, you know, going to cut down some trees. And, um, and when something like that happens, when life presents me with a change, shall we say, especially a change towards the unpleasant, so this was an unpleasant experience, um, I just really am interested in what my mind does. It's like automatically I watch my mind. So I was like, hmm, well, let's see what the mind does with this one, right? And um, there's uh, a little bit of aversion, not a lot. And then I watched my mind like try to come up with catastrophizing stories about this. It would make it made these like weak attempts <laughs> to come up with catastrophizing stories, but they couldn't get any steam behind them. It, like they, they kind of would kind of start and then kind of sputter. And um, and I was I was surprised for me surprisingly equanimous. Um, I would say that I um, either was born a warrior or became one at quite a young age, very good at worry and anxiety. Um, When I was a teenager, I was so good at anxiety that I used to every night um, review my day to make sure that I had worried about everything enough. And and if there was something I hadn't worried about enough, I would worry about it (laughs) as I laid in bed at night. It was like my nightly ritual. (laughs) Um, So um, practice has been helpful. Really, I hate to think about the shape this mind would be in if I hadn't meditated. Oh my God! So, um, <laughs> so I, I watched the mind, and at a certain point, I realized, like, if the mind made a lot of drama about this person next door, it would only be because I was trying to avoid future unpleasant moments. I was like. I'll deal with future unpleasant moments when they arise. And if he does actually um, uh, build his little retreat hut, there probably will be some unpleasant moments. But practice gives us confidence that, like, we can deal with those. It can be okay, even though it's unpleasant. (laughs) This afternoon was interesting, too. So I finished um, a draft of the talk on my uh, iPad, what I was hoping was my last draft on my iPad at around 4.30. Now, if you remember what was happening at 4.30, it was a, quite a thunderstorm, right? So the, what I needed to do, because you, you can't print it from my iPad, I, had, I, I was emailing it to the staff up here in the office for them to print it out for me. So I called the office staff, and um, Elizabeth, I said, I'm, I want to email my talk. Can you print it? She said, well, actually... Um, our system is down. There was a bright, bright flash because of the storm, and our system's down. 
And so I watched my mind. It was like, okay, this is unpleasant. Um, and there was, there was, you know, a little bit of a recognition that I might not be able to have my my talk printed out in the version that I'd worked hard to to finish up. And the next thought in my mind was, this should be interesting. And it didn't go off into a version. It was just like, huh, well, this will be a new experience. How will this turn out? (laughs) So this is the way that this practice helps us to really just have more space around pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. More lightness. Then she said, (laughs) so right after she said that, then she said, but I think if you send it to this address, Roberta can get it. I was like, okay, great. And that worked out. So I do actually have my draft here. (laughs) The other day I said that the goal of the spiritual path is the unshakable liberation of the heart and mind. So that's what we develop with this kind of practice is a certain steadiness, imperturbability. We always have our edges, right? We're still working our edges, but there's an increased sense of um, steadiness and a deeper sense of spaciousness. And what we see with all of this is that um, freedom isn't about gaining anything. It's about uh, letting go. But what we're letting go of is not the experiences that are going fine on their own. What we're letting go of is the contraction, the stress, the tension, and the holding on to what's slipping away anyway. We're preventing rope burn. <laughs> when you hold on to a rope like in tug of war and the other team's like going to win, right? <laughs> So sometimes we worry that letting go um, means we're losing something. All we're losing is contraction, stress, tension, dukkha. That's okay, no? We can handle that. What we're doing is making peace with the world as it is. Or... um, I read a while ago, somebody said, we're letting go of a dysfunctional relationship with the present moment. (laughs) We're developing a functional relationship with the present moment. One person said that uh, their secret to happiness and peace is a wholehearted, unrestricted cooperation with the unavoidable or developing a wholehearted, unrestricted cooperation with life. An image I have of this sometimes is um, from a Buster Keaton movie. Probably most of you don't know who Buster Keaton is, but he was a um, silent film star from, I don't know, early 1900s maybe? I don't have the exact dates. But when I was a child in um, the 1960s, uh, my dad used to rent movies from the library. So these were real movies, like on reels. (laughs) And um, and he would... uh, We had a big family. There were eight kids, so... Right there we had our audience, and he would um, put these movies. So he'd get this Buster Keaton movie. I always asked him to get this same movie because I loved it so much. It was, I think it was called The Railroad or something. I'm not really sure of even the title. I tried to look for it recently on Netflix, but I couldn't find it. (laughs) So the movie has Buster Keaton. Um, He's reading this newspaper in, in, in London, and it's something about see the beautiful wildness of Canada. This one's for you Canadians. 
So, um, so, so then he jumps into the river, and then you see him um, walking out of the ocean. You know, he swam across the ocean, supposedly. So you see him walk out of the ocean in, um, on the west, east coast of Canada. And he walks up this little hill, and there's a railroad, end of a railroad there, and there's this old railroad cart, one of those old carts that, like, you pumped like this, right? And it has a chair. So he sits down in the chair on the cart, and it has this big box. And then the cart starts going across Canada. And all these things happen to him on his journey. So first he'll be going along. It's sunny, pleasant, really nice. He'll be sitting there enjoying it. And then, and then it'll start raining. And he opens his little box. He takes out the umbrella, puts his umbrella out. And he's just unperturbed. Everything's cool. He's doing what needs to be done, but no problem, right? So then it stops raining. He puts his umbrella back. And then a big snowstorm, and he opens his little box, takes out a big fur coat, puts on his fur coat, and just unperturbed, just sitting there, do-do-do-do-do. It's kind of a do-do-do-do. You know, it's the music, because it's like a silent movie, right? And he's just do-do-do-do-do. And that's the whole movie. Like, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how I liked that, like, at eight years old, but I did. You know, because he was funny, too. He was a comedian, so I don't remember what he did that was funny, but what I remembered was, like, he just was unperturbed. Whatever happened, he just responded appropriately and enjoyed it. He just enjoyed his trip. So we can all learn to be like Buster Keaton, you know. We go through life, we learn to just, we respond appropriately. He did what was appropriate. He put on his coat when it was cold. He put used an umbrella when it was raining. Um, he enjoyed it all, um, but didn't get dramatic or um, <coughs> bent out of shape by it. equanimity. He was able to just let go and go with the flow. So as I said, the whole path is about letting go rather than um, gaining anything. Letting go of stress, tension, dukkha, contraction, clinging, holding on. And that kind of messes with our minds a little bit because we're used to the idea that we're going to get something. And so we come to practice hoping we're going to get something, right? It's hard to wrap our minds around the fact that we're actually letting go of some things. We're, we're, um, we're jettisoning <laughs> the, uh, the extra baggage. But we can experience this letting go, and you've had tastes of it. I'm sure most of you have had tastes of it. And we see that it's actually a relief. It's like taking off a tight shoe. And maybe you didn't know that the shoe was bothering you till you took it off, but when you took it off, you knew that kind of relief. So perhaps you've had moments of taste of this freedom when you're able to just sit here, um, even if it lasts like with um, with our friend, um, our teenage friend, even though it's just a short time when you have some moments where it's just, it's okay just being here with things as they are, a kind of peace. Or perhaps you've had taste of it when you've been resisting something, kind of not wanting something to be there, and then something surrenders, and you're just like, oh, this is how it is. Okay. There's a sense of relief. You've let go of the stress and contraction. So we taste these moments we develop a, um, a, a sense of um, kind of the pathway to letting go. It's like I was talking about metas, learning the pathway into the heart. Through our practice, we learn the pathway to letting go because the more that we do it, um, the more the mind knows how to do it. We acclimate to it. And then we, we understand um, more what um, kind of happiness the Buddha talked, pointed to as the deepest kind of happiness, which is peace. 
you could say, um, a sense of deep rest, non-agitation of mind and heart. I remember when I was teaching uh, in Burma with Michelle a number of years ago, one woman, I just, I remember this moment, she rose her hand in the question and answer period. She said, where can we rest? We all have this deep yearning to know where can we rest. We can consider the possibility that this deep peace of being able to rest and the way things are is what we really yearn, yearn for more than the um, temporary solace of pleasantness. And what's cool is we just get every moment to explore this, every moment fresh, anew. The present moment never gives up on us. We can keep uh, working out our freedom. Or if you're duking it out with dukkha, (laughs) same thing. And then as the um, the contractedness of the heart and mind, as the uh, grasping and the aversion and the uh, spacing outness uh, start to lessen and we're here able to be here more, we find that um, we actually see more clearly the truth. Grasping and aversion and um, spacing out... Um, fuzz the truth, they, they, they distort the truth of the moment. But as these uh, energies, uh, or these mind states become less um, dense or uh, less frequent, we can start to see more clearly um, the truth and then how to respond effectively. So this, this letting go um, and resting doesn't mean that we don't respond. It doesn't mean that we're passive. It doesn't definitely doesn't mean that we don't care. Because what we find when, when the heart and mind is freer of grasping, aversion, spacing out, delusion, what we find is that that innate quality of compassion and metta can really shine forth. That, it, that, it, that it's there. That that's what um, becomes more, more predominant. And then out of that, yes, we engage with our lives. We, we do what is helpful and skillful and what lessens suffering for ourselves, what lessens suffering for others. So it's very clear we're not talking about indifference, as Michelle said last night. If our practice is making us more indifferent, we're doing it wrong. Our practice actually increases our um, ability to care and respond. And when you think of folks that um, have meditated a lot, you notice this kind of caring quality and a lightness of heart and spirit. You can think, for example, of um, when you think of seeing the Dalai Lama, you know, the, the kindness in his eyes, the lightness. He laughs a lot. He's got a very lightness about him, for example. And then you hear the stories that we tell about um, some of our monk and nun friends. So we do need to end. great story here for ending. So there is, um, there was a deva, a deva in the time of the Buddha. So devas, um, there's said to be a number of um, realms, heavenly realms above us. We're kind of in the Buddhist cosmology, we're we're near the bottom. (laughs) So a deva is a being who uh, comes from one of these uh, more heavenly realms. So there was a deva who asked the Buddha, I wanted to know, 
how, in brief, a bhikkhu or a meditator is liberated. So I thought we were the ones who always just wanted to hurry, but I guess back then there were some, you know, who wanted to get the job done quickly too. It's like, all right, how in brief, please, Mr. Buddha, are we liberated? (laughs) And from the um, discourse on the destruction of craving, the shorter discourse (laughs) on the destruction of craving, this was the answer. So this is a fast track. And a bhikkhu um, is traditionally a, a monk. Uh, I think the word is used because that's who the um, Buddha was addressing a lot, but we can include all of us. All of us are as spiritual searchers. When a bhikkhu has heard that nothing is worth adhering to, he directly knows everything. Whatever feeling he feels, whether pleasant or painful or neutral, He or she abides contemplating impermanence in these feelings. Contemplating thus, he or she does not cling to anything in this world. When he or she does not cling, they are not agitated. When we are not agitated, we personally attain nibbana. There's the short teachings. Let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.